Uh, take your Bibles. Turn to First Thessalonians. Did I say Happy Mother's Day? You know, I was thinking if there is a thankless job to people who are more dedicated, I don't know what it is other than moms. They do more things with more dedication that people never see and without a whole lot of applause. So moms, we give it up for you. Guys, let's thank them. All right. And it's a great lead-in for this new series, short series that we're going to get in called A Model for Servanthood. Because, you know, there are two books that are named after Timothy. He was a young pastor in the early church. And from what we read, Timothy had a huge heart for people. He had the kind of characteristics I think we would all want in a, uh, a pastor. He didn't go to seminary, but the Apostle Paul recognizes two people that had the most significant influence on his life, and guess who they were? His mother and his grandmother. We read in 2 Timothy 1, 4, and 5, As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwell first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. A spiritual legacy by these women, grandmother and mother. Uh, Proverbs 31 starts with a declaration that what we're about to hear are lessons that were given to a king by guess who? His mother. So when it comes to influencing, be it political leaders, spiritual leaders, women have had great impact. Turn to any woman who's closest to you and say, you have great influence. It should come as no surprise then that the Apostle Paul, when he's seeking to encourage the Thessalonians, he tells them that their influence, the influence of his ministry team, uh, was from spiritual leaders who basically modeled their ministry after, guess who? Mothers. He says, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. You talk about dedication, you talk about ownership, it's a nursing mother. You talk about gentleness, nothing greater than a nursing mother, right? I've been impressed lately with servants who operate that way, godly servants that operate like a mother would. Um, You know, whenever there's a great endeavor, There are always people behind the scenes who work to get things done that people never notice. Uh, Yesterday, I was a part of a prayer team for Convoy of Hope. We had two teams, one that was stationary. We had people that prayed throughout the entire event, and we saw God move in marvelous ways. And then we had a team that kind of was just roving the grounds, you know, kind of like going around Jericho like Joshua did, and we, we were praying for the different ministries as we viewed them. I was a part of that team, and we, we came to the back of the Eplex, the main building that's also behind the grandstand, and there was a group of people that nobody else could see. And, you know, thousands of people were benefiting, though, from what these people were doing. And what they were doing was preparing 13,000 hot dogs to feed the guests 
and the volunteers. The crowd didn't see them. They never got a standing ovation. They were not paid for it. They were working out on that hot spring day yesterday over huge grills, but yet there was great benefit to their labor. They put smiles on the faces of many of these children, and they energized volunteers who needed an energy boost in the middle of the day. It reminds me that the same thing happens in a church. There are things that go on that people never really see, recognize, or notice, and it takes these kinds of of servants to pull off what we do, right? You you think of of people who get here at 7.30 or 8 to start making coffee. You you think of people who work a nursery, who, who clean during the week, who teach a class, who run a soundboard, who prepare slides, run the computer that has the video projection, who learn music, who, who mow the grass, who sweep, who follow up with visitors, who put smile on people's faces, and you could go on and on and on of the people who work behind the scenes. And like mothers, they just do what has to be done, and they do it with ownership like they're taking care of their own children. Now, you know, whenever a church thinks about the idea of volunteers who work behind the scenes, there are many perceptions to this. Uh, For instance, there's a dichotomy that people have between paid staff and volunteers. The idea is basically, in a lot of people's minds, you you have paid staff who seek to coerce volunteers to do what the staff is unwilling to do or doesn't want to do or not able to do, and Usually people perceive that they use guilt or they oversell the projects, and then people get burned out quickly. And that is not too unlike in our culture. You know, you have white-collar workers, blue-collar workers, right? Isn't it interesting to think of the number of times that the Bible uses the word volunteer? One time. One time. And it's in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles 17, 16. It speaks of a guy named Amasiah, a volunteer for the service of the Lord with another 200,000 mighty men of valor. You compare that with how many times the word servant, service, or other derivatives are used, servanthood, over a thousand times in the Bible. Perhaps it's because volunteer doesn't capture it as much as the idea of being a servant or bond servant. I mean, volunteer has the idea of almost, you know, well, I'll get to it when I can. It implies, you know, uh, when it's convenient, certainly a part-time thing. But servanthood has the idea of serving under a master. And in terms of the kingdom of God, Jesus Christ is our master. And it's to be a lifestyle of service. And certainly it includes a a motivation and a benefit that runs far beyond just human recognition. That's servanthood. And what's interesting about servants is that once they understand the kingdom value of a particular endeavor, I mean, they are in it for life. They make this a priority. You know, servants certainly have to pick and choose because they can't do everything. They pick and choose their opportunities, but they do not pick or choose whether they're going to live a life of service. 
They're already in. They're going to serve somehow, some way. That's servant. So it begs the question, what makes a great servant? You ever think of that? 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 and 8 gives us a recipe from the life of the Apostle Paul and the team that he put together, Timothy and Silas, also known as Silvanus. They visited Thessalonica on Paul's second missionary journey. And yet they conducted themselves as servants of Jesus Christ and as models for the rest of us to follow. So why go through something like this? Well, because all of us are called to be literally bondservants of Christ. So let's learn how we can do that well. Let's all stand. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. So Father, I pray that these, my friends here today, would not just embrace the idea but live better lives as servants of our most high king, Jesus. Make it so in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. We know this, that a life of service to Christ, a life of servanthood is always effective. It's always effective at least from God's account. God will always reward the servant somehow, some way. It may not show itself to us immediately, but it's never in vain. Paul said that the church was a witness to he and his team, what they did, and that it was not in vain. Now, does this mean that thousands came to Christ? No. Not necessarily. Does this mean that the response was just over the top? No. Good, but not necessarily. You see, service to Christ is not always impressive, at least to the masses, and not even always recognized by us. In fact, you may get opposition. And you think, well... Well, that didn't work. Again, not necessarily, all right? Paul was run out of town in Thessalonica after a few weeks. And notice how he defined success in his leadership. And this is in verse 13 after he, he, he got through explaining in the first 12 verses about the kind of ministry he had. And then in verse 13 he says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, You accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, 
the word of God, which is at work in you believers. In other words, you responded to the word of God. God was transforming your thoughts, transforming your lives, and that is what we were after. So there was transformation that took place. Now, you may not see the changes right away. In fact, you may not even see the changes in your lifetime, but be assured whether you see it or not, God is going to honor your servant labors. The Associated Press released a study done by an agricultural school in Iowa, and it reported that production of 100 bushels of corn from one acre of land, in addition to the many hours of the farmer's labors, and it, that, that this requires 6,800 pounds of oxygen, 5,200 pounds of carbon, 160 pounds of nitrogen, 125 pounds of potassium, 75 pounds of yellow sulfur, and other elements, too numerous to list. But the primary ingredient, rain and sunshine, which I think we can acknowledge none of us can produce but God. It was estimated that basically 5% of the produce of a farm can be attributed to man's efforts. That's probably a good ratio to remember when it comes to spiritual fruit. Listen to what Paul has to say in Colossians chapter 1 when he talks about fruit. He says this. This is in verse 9 and 10. And so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Well, now, how do you measure somebody growing in the knowledge of God? How do you measure that? How do you measure by numbers of somebody walking with Christ, walking in obedience? You can't always measure that by a number, can you? Oh, we try, but it doesn't always work that way. But that was great fruit. They were praying for people that they would be filled with the knowledge of Christ to do the work of Christ. We're talking about the quality of a life that is lived. See, you could have thousands of people filling a room. And if people are not living under the lordship of Christ, if they are not acknowledging or drinking in the word of Christ in their lives, what kind of fruit is that? The servant of Christ is effective because he or she has given their labor as unto the Lord and he works as he will in the lives of people, changing, transforming. That's what Paul was after. That was his target. That's what God was doing with his labor. Next we see in verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Service to Christ sticks to God-given objectives when under pressure. See, before Paul was in Thessalonica, he and Silas were in Philippi. They had exorcised a demon from a fortune teller. All right? That was not the way 
to win over business owners of the community because they saw Paul's exorcism as a way to bite in to their business as fortune tellers. So what did they do? They stripped the clothes off of Paul and Silas. They whipped them in public, and they threw them in prison. Now, if that was your experience in a ministry opportunity, that may encourage you to start writing books and not be in ministry anymore, something much safer. Instead, Paul goes to Thessalonica, get this, he camps out in the middle of a Jewish synagogue and he starts telling them why Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He not only continued to be obedient to his calling of proclaiming the gospel, but he did it without reservation. He did it with boldness. It means with freedom of speech, he did not hold back. He understood what his objective was. Verse 2, he says, to speak to you the gospel of God. Verse 3, to make our appeal. Verse 4, to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Verse 8, to share with you the gospel in our own lives. Verse 9, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. He understood what he was there to do. He did not let the threat of even death get in the way, stop him from serving his master. Think of that. I mean, that message today, when you're talking about, you know, volunteers who, well, you know, uh, I'll get to it when I can, convenience is worshipped. I mean, I'll get to God and, you know, do that kind of stuff when I have time. John Wesley's words are appropriate here when he said, do all the good you can by all the means you can and all the ways you can and all the places you can at all the times you can to all the people you can as long as ever you can. That sounds like a person who understood he was a servant of Jesus Christ, doesn't it? I had somebody who I met yesterday who was uh, talking to me and said, man, I don't, I don't get how you can do what you do as a, as a, as a pastor. And I said, well, maybe I don't get what you do, all right? Bottom line is we're both servants of Jesus Christ. And whatever we do vocationally is just a minor thing. But we're both servants. We do whatever God asks us to do, do we not? Right? And God will equip us for that. Secondly, we see this, that a servanthood life defines and pursues godly qualities. Verse 3, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. There's a clothing manufacturer by the name of Patagonia, which employs 45 full-time technicians who fix 30,000 pieces of clothing, repairing them that they have constructed and now are in disrepair. They take 30,000 in to repair those. In fact, in the spring, they sent people around in a truck around the U.S. in 2015, coast to coast, to fix people's clothing that they had bought from this company. Imagine that. The company says that that was one of the most responsible things we could do as a company, to make high-quality stuff that lasts for years and can be repaired so that you don't have to buy more of it. That is a company that is pursuing quality with a passion. 
And by the way, that creates great customer loyalty as well, does it not? It does, it does. Years ago, I had one of my sons, I asked to take my Weber grill here to the church, pick it up at a house, he put it in the back of his truck, did not tie it in the truck, got it to the church, okay, when he pulled in, it rushed into the back of the window of his truck, broke the truck, broke the lid of the Weber grill. This thing was about seven or eight years old, by the way, which was a gift from our church. I called Weber up the next day. I said, hey, I, I've got a broken um, you know, cover on my grill. They asked me for the number, and I gave you know, some serial number on it. And I said, oh, how much would it cost for me to get a new top? And they said, oh, it won't cost you anything. I go, what? I go, well, it's still under warranty. It's got a 10-year warranty. I go, serious? I get a new cover for no charge? Guess what kind of grill I will buy for the rest of my life? That's what the customer loyalty means when, when people just treat you like that, right? I mean, you, you appreciate that. You appreciate that. Uh, Jay Willard Marriott of the Marriott Hotels was 82 and was known to be incensed at any sign of carelessness by those that worked in his Marriott facilities. He would personally read through every customer complaint card. Wow. It begs the question, how can we make sure that we have our quality control in order as a servant of Christ? You ever think about that? I mean, what are the things that we should be passionate about in our service to Christ? Quality control as a servant. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. The first thing we realize is that truth is to be accurately represented in my life. Our appeal does not come from error. If you believe that the Bible is the word of God and that God is conveying truth to us, that we have an obligation to live under its authority, amen? That's why I think people who, who attack the Bible, who don't say, well, it doesn't say this, it doesn't, you know, speak to our moral life. I read a book just not too long ago where the, where the author, who, by the way, was a pastor who said the Bible has nothing to say about our sexual relationships. And I'm like, what? <laughs> That's what he said. And I'm like, okay, This, I think, is just like the 14-year-old child who is arguing with his parents, criticizes the parents because why? They don't want to do what the parent has to say, right? And in the same way, we criticize the Bible, we attack the Bible because we do not want to live under the authority of an almighty God who has set up an absolute standard in our lives. Instead, we give God the middle finger and we say, we're going to do whatever we want, Attack the Bible all we want, but it is a smokescreen for our heart's desire to rebel against God. Listen, my thinking about relationships is to be measured by God's wisdom. My thinking about marriage or money is to be measured by God's wisdom. And these All of these are priorities that I need to align with the Word of God. I heard a couple entertainers recently talking about 
how they are raising their children. And they were praising uh, some child psychologists for information about how the brain works in a child and how to raise their children. Now, I'm not saying there's no truth to psychology, but what if two psychologists differ? Which psychologists are you going to follow? What if uh, one psychologist differs with what the culture has to say? Who are you going to listen to? You see, there are a multitude of different truths out there that, that, that we get to choose from, right? How are you going to discern wisdom from foolishness? And are there any true authorities to these major areas of our life? Is there any true wisdom out there? I think the Bible cuts through all of that and gives us a guidebook for our life, and I'll put my money there. The truth is accurately represented. Secondly, we possess moral integrity. The bio, uh, Paul uses the word impurity. It means holiness in the life of the person. It has the idea of being beyond reproach. I mean, if our integrity is shot full of holes, how are we going to influence others? I mean, we do what we say we're going to do. Now, this word is usually applied to sexual relationships, but I think it can be used in all kinds of settings. Moral integrity. It doesn't come from just our intent, but it speaks to our actions and habits that are structured to exhibit integrity. It goes to the, the way we treat people. We treat people the same no matter what they look like. I, I, was, I was just thinking yesterday as I was looking at these people, so needy. You can, just, you can just look at them and say, wow, I do not live in that world. And it, it, it's so easy to get a little arrogant, a little prideful. So easy to just say, man, if they would only, you know, do this or that. And I just, I just prayed, and we prayed as a group, God, keep us from being arrogant and always help us to have a heart for the poor. Why is it that most of our churches are white middle class? You ever ask yourself that? I do as a pastor. Now, I realize Springfield is 2% African American, all right? I get that. And I'm not saying we should feel guilty that God blesses us because he does, but let it not be, if, it's, if that's the case, let it not be because of our attitudes. And let us understand that anybody who drives in this parking lot and they see all the cars and they got this old jalopy, they might drive right off because they feel so intimidated. Now, that's nothing for us to feel guilty about. That's just the way that is. We understand that there's, there's this division that people have. So what that means for us is let's work extra hard at welcoming other people. Let's work extra hard at being hospitable so that people know we love you, we value you, we don't care what kind of car you drive, what kind of clothes you have, you're good with us, and we care about you. That's all. That's what I'm saying. The Wall Street Journal researcher Jonah Lair noted that most of us are nicer as we're climbing the social ladder, but once we get to the top, according to him, we start acting, acting like a beast. Lair writes, 
quote, as one business professor concluded, it's an incredibly consistent effect that when you give people power, they basically start acting like fools. They flirt inappropriately, tease in a hostile fashion, and become totally impulsive. Some have even compared the feeling of power to brain damage, noting that people with lots of authority tend to behave like neurological patients with a damaged frontal lobe, a brain area that's crucial for empathy and decision-making. Lehrer noted a study in which psychologists asked members of a high-power group about speeding. The group concluded that it was okay for them to speed, but it was important for others to follow the posted limit. Their rationale was that powerful people are important and had a good reason for speeding. And then he concludes with this. Even the most virtuous people can be undone by the corner office. How we treat people matters. I think it's a part of our moral integrity. Any of you that are leaders, business leaders, spiritual leaders, stop and think. How do the people I work most closely with, my employees, what do they really think about the way I treat them? That's a part of your moral integrity. That doesn't mean you can't fire people, but you can do that with respect. You can do that giving people value. I'm not saying, you know, you give them the store, all right? But I'm saying you're always fair. You're always honest. You're treating them the way you would want to be treated if you were an employee. Do people feel valued in our presence? When they do, that builds our integrity, not a public persona. Listen, I've said this before. You may get the impression because I'm up here speaking, I've got everything down. I don't struggle. You know, it's just a spiritual high all the time. Janet must be so impressed with me and my spirituality, you know. But listen, we have issues just like any other family. We have marital struggles just like any other family does, any other marriage. But God has, God has put me in this position, and I just have to make real sure that I don't get arrogant or think I'm something extra special. And just like whenever we get into any other position, we have to remember that, that God's the one that gifts us. God's the one that's going to use this and because uh, it can go to our head really quick. Amen? We know it can. So Paul drives the point home when he says, I did not attempt to deceive. In other words, we strive for authenticity. I did not attempt to deceive. Now, certainly, I think Paul meant deceiving with his words. He didn't want to give a gospel any different than than the one that he was given. But we can also deceive by presenting ourselves as something that we are not. Right? We leave an impression that is false. In other words, our words are to align with the truth of Scripture And what we present about our lives aligns with reality. There's a story of a a man who bought a violin at a Las Vegas pawn shop. This was on a History Channel reality show. He found the violin in a barn that he had just purchased, and it had imprinted on the violin Stradivarius. He had hoped it was worth millions, but he found out that it was a cheap imitation. And the appraiser told this crestfallen violin owner, quote, just because something has a label 
doesn't mean it's real. It's a good lesson for all of us. Just because somebody may give you a label, just because you have a title, that doesn't mean that's who you really are. Who is the real you? Who is it that you present to others? Do those match? During grade school, John Corcoran never learned to read or write, but he somehow became promoted to the next grade. He got to high school, still not knowing how to read or write, and he mastered new skills. And he said, quote, I started cheating by turning in other people's papers. Kids, this is not recommended. I'm just giving you a story, okay? All right. He started cheating by turning in other people's uh, papers. And then he says, I dated the valedictorian and ran around with college prep kids. I couldn't read words, but I could read the system and I could read people. He received an athletic scholarship to Texas Western College, cheated his way through there as well, getting a degree in guess what? Education. (laughs) He got a job as a teacher and for the next 17 years, taught in high school, unable to read or write. True story. He says, what I did was I created an oral and visual environment. There wasn't the written word in there. I always had two or three teacher's assistants in each class to do board work or read the bulletin. And he later, after 17 years, left teaching and became a real estate developer because apparently they don't need to read or write. (laughs) Later, actually, after this, he learned to read and write, and he became an advocate for, you guessed it, education, better educational systems. Wow. Listen, a servant of Christ doesn't have to fake anything. Think of the freedom of being a child of God that we don't have to fake anything. I don't have to fake to you that I'm a better parent than I am. I don't have to fake to you that I'm a better husband than I am. I don't have to fake to you that I'm a better man than I am. I just am who I am. And there is freedom in being honest. You know why? Because the biggest thing that I could ever have is already secured in Jesus Christ. I am a child of God, and that will never change. I am unconditionally loved by the creator of the universe. I am a recipient of the grace of God. I am able to have intimate fellowship with my creator. It doesn't get any better than that, gang. I've already got the treasure at the end of the rainbow. And I want to enjoy that. Everything else is just gravy, right? And as we get to love him, we do so by calling ourselves servants of Jesus Christ and living in light of that as obedient children of God. That is the Christian life. That is my goal. And that ought to be your goal. Whether you're a mailman, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a nurse, you and I both have the same goal. We want to be faithful servants of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.